This episode contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, May 16th, the Place to Belong edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's 8, and Teddy, who's 5. We live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm Zach Rosen. I make the Best Advice Show podcast, and I live in Detroit with my family. Noah is four, and Ami is one. And I'm Amber O'Neill Johnston. I write at heritagemom.com, and I have a book called A Place to Belong. My kiddos are 12, 10, 8, and 6, and we live outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Well, today on the show, we're going to be talking about how you and your families can celebrate your own identities while learning about and appreciating other people's races and cultural differences. It's a question you all have asked about a lot over the years, and we're so lucky to have Amber here. She just released a new book called A Place to Belong, which we'll be talking about a little later. But before we get into that, we wanted to dive into our mailbag and share some of your thoughts. We got a message on Facebook that I thought Amber might be able to offer some thoughts on as well. Take it away, Shasha. In a recent episode, Elizabeth mentioned that she'll be going back to homeschooling for all three kids next year. How did her family come to that decision? I have twin five-year-olds and have been mulling over the idea of self-directed education for them since they were about one. I've settled on sending them three days a week to a self-directed education center here in Massachusetts. I'd love to hear some of the reasoning that went into the New Camp family's choice and what Elizabeth's experience has been like as a former homeschooling parent who then tried out some formal schools for her kids. Well, Amber, you actually had just had either a post or an Instagram kind of talking about the original reasons why you homeschooled and and where it's. So I was hoping you could share some of that with our listeners as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at this point, I really feel like every year I try to come up with my new why. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I would tell a listener is like, you don't have to have the same thoughts. Like you want to try the self-directed education three times a week. Yes, go for it. And then if it's not working, change it. If you love it, keep going. Um, so for me, when we first started homeschooling, our number one goal was acceleration. So we were like, our oldest, she's ahead. She's a brilliant, more brilliant than everyone around her, um, as every parent says of their firstborn. And we felt like she was ready to start kindergarten earlier than what the school district would allow her to do. And so my husband did some research and he said that if we homeschooled her for two years, then we could put her back into the school at a higher grade. And that was our number one motivation. And now I'm just looking at it it's like, what (laughs) in the world? I know you're laughing because I'm known now as like slow childhood. No, you're like slow and like immersive. Yeah. I know. It's so crazy, but that's just how wild it is. And and that's why I always say, like, give yourself permission to change because now our why is the exact polar opposite of that. And so my reason now is I want my children to have plenty of time to explore rabbit trails and to dive into passions, to be able to sleep in a little bit and to ride their natural rhythms and the natural rhythms of our family. And so I think it's hilarious. I was trying to get my you know, five-year-old into Harvard. That's why I started. And now I'm just like, yeah, 
you know, you win some, you lose some. And the other thing I was going to say is like, it's okay to have a thought about one style of education and then totally throw something else into the mix. So I'm generally known as following the philosophies of this educator, Charlotte Mason, but yet I just, you know, shared earlier that my youngest goes to a really immersive Waldorf inspired forest kindergarten. What in the world is that? And it's like, because I heard about it and it's near my house. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I want my kid to have awesomeness. And so I didn't worry about like, well, my philosophy is that I have to be in this box over here. And so some of my kids do some things and some of my kids do something else. And we come back around and change it up and go over and under and through and through. And I think that's like part of the really cool thing about being a parent is to look at your child and be able to make new choices um, based on the little people before you at each in any given moment. Amber, you said, you know, you started because you wanted to get your kid into Harvard. At what point did that stop becoming a priority? Well, I think that for me, I actually started reading. So that's my approach. I didn't know how to homeschool. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I started reading books and reading people who had given a lot more thought to early childhood education than I ever had. And they talked about time spent outdoors and nature and that children were experiencing something called a nature deficit. And they talked about how children at some age, all of that accelerated learning starts to even out regardless of whether they started early or not. And they talked about the importance of these other ideas like character development and, and habit training and other aspects of childhood beyond just pure traditional academics. And the more I read, the more, and, and also one thing that was interesting, it wasn't just one person. I wasn't just like, I'm going to read about from this one guru who's out there in left field. It seemed like wherever I turned and I read and researched down a path, they all converged at this idea of slowing down. And so I decided to, you know, slow down with them. And, and it's been a beautiful thing. I'm sort of very similar that I have always approached it as like each child, each year, each place, because we move around, like we'll make these decisions and I'm not making any permanent decisions. And when we moved from my kids were all in the like government school system of the Netherlands when we were there. I was very happy with that. I had kind of toyed around with a homeschool preschool um, when I'd been in the States before. And then when we got to Florida, the system just like everything about the school system was not a good match for us. And also kind of how with Jeff's job, like how I wanted us to spend time as a family, which is kind of how we entered the homeschool realm. And then when we moved here, it was like, okay, there's now this opportunity for this outdoor fourth grade. And, you know, Henry got a spot and it was like, there's this opportunity to send Oliver to a one day a week program at the Waldorf school, which is a great, like emotionally comforting place for him and start to introduce him. He's kind of a homebody, like introduce him to having someone else as a teacher, like just taking advantage of these opportunities. We've now done that for a year. And I think the thing is that our rhythm has been so driven by the school system. And we as a family do not like that. This is not to say that, listen, these are education choices are a family decision made on lots of things. I am so aware that it is a privilege that I'm able to have the kids home with me. I know that that's not available to everyone. I also just think homeschooling is not necessarily for everyone, but every school system is also not for everyone. And that can include that, like, you feel like you want to homeschool, but your kid actually does better in a traditional school. Like, I think looking at that is so important and not being, like Amber said, so stuck in your 
thoughts and your ways that you don't notice what your children need or even what your family needs. Like it is, I put Teddy in preschool this year because having him home is a huge drain on me. (laughs) And so it was like, this little kid needs to go somewhere so that I can school you know, Oliver, and so that I can be here emotionally for Henry and for medical stuff. And that's okay. Next year, all of them are coming back. The year in preschool has been incredible for Teddy, and he has gained so many skills in that group environment through some peer pressure, stuff that I think has been really good for him. And he's now way more receptive to sitting down and doing work with me and letting me be part of his guided kind of exploration, because that's sort of how I tend to think of their school is that I'm also part of this journey. Like, yes, we're doing some math books and stuff, but in general, we're sort of following their pursuits and seeing what we can learn (laughs) along the way and hopefully get some math and make sure we're reading some things, you know. But I think once I started on that journey and then we were off of it, the rhythm just never worked for us this year in having that just kind of like unstructured learning time as a family. So I think try something and if it doesn't work, try something else. And that's the only way you're going to learn. And that's also like even year to year in homeschooling, I'm making choices like, hey, this math program worked great for my friend, but it doesn't fit for us. And so we need to find something else. Or, you know, this having them demonstrate this learning just doesn't, that's not something I'm necessarily good at. I I fall back into a lot of those habits I learned from being in school. So that model doesn't work for us. We work the best sitting on a picnic blanket with me reading and us just kind of talking or drawing. That doesn't work for everyone. So I think you need to find what works, you know, for your family. Thank you so much for writing in. We also heard from many of you empathizing and offering support for our Trash It All mom. One letter writer had some very practical advice that we wanted to share with you. I feel you. Take a look at some of the YouTube videos of family-friendly minimalists like The Minimal Mom, Dana K. White, and Joshua Becker. The Minimal Mom in particular had a very similar snapping moment when her four kids were quite young and she was drowning in toys and clutter, plus trying to work out of the home. It took her more than a year, but it saved her sanity and greatly improved their family life. I think any frazzled mom could look at how she has implemented systems and enlisted her kids and come away with some good ideas and a way to make a start. This isn't minimalism as an empty white box with nothing on the walls. This is a rational way to live as a family that, yes, has stuff, but not the sea of clutter and despair. I've learned a lot from these folks and other YouTubers talking about similar topics. Regards, Deb in Colorado. Well, thank you all for writing in. We always love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts, email us at slate.com. You can always record a voice memo and email that in. All right, let's take a quick break. If you're new to our show, welcome. Whether you're a parent, educator, or just interested in this wild journey, we're so glad to have you. Here on Mom and Dad are Fighting, we share our parenting triumphs and fails, offer some advice, and share recommendations of things we love. We're here twice a week on Monday and Thursday, so subscribe to never miss an episode. All right, we're back. Let's turn now to an ongoing conversation we're having on the show, and I'm sure you're having it too, Amber. There's been an uptick in the last few years of parents looking for guidance on how to teach their kids hard history, but also celebrate cultural heritage. Amber, your new book, A Place to Belong, does just that. 
And you open your book with this idea that you assumed your children would always feel secure and valued and loved in your arms. And while that's largely true, you realized comfort was confused with belonging. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, definitely. I mean, I thought that my husband and I will be very present and very loving and connected to our children, spend lots of time with them and pour into them, lots of eye contact and physical touch and sharing meals together and all of these things that I had experienced as a child and also read about. And we were doing all of that and it was generally really good, but my children were having problems, particularly my oldest, and she was really expressing her discomfort with having brown skin and curly hair. And always she would tell me, I don't like going places where I'm the only girl there with brown skin. And I thought, wow, they're loved, but they don't feel like they belong. And it kind of gave me this new vision for parenting, something that I hadn't considered because I thought that love and comfort would give belonging. So when you noticed that happening, when your kid didn't feel like they belonged, how did you respond? Well, to be honest, at first I was just like, it's fine. You know, we're all the same on the inside. And I kind of swept it under the rug. I would take her comments. I would just say something a little bit trite. Oh, we're all the same on the inside. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Um, You look great and we're all special. But things, instead of things getting, I thought she would outgrow it. I thought these were just little things. She was my first. Um, But instead of getting better, they got worse. And eventually uh, my husband and I got to a point of real despair. We talked about like, do we need to move? Or I can't control the demographics of our neighborhood unless we change a neighborhood or, you know, go someplace else. Uh, What about our church? I just couldn't figure it out. And ultimately what happened was we had an opportunity for her to be around some Black people. We started kind of cheating on our church, I guess you would call it. And we we would go to our church at the early service and then we'd leave. And on the way home, we'd go to the late service at this all-Black church. And when I looked over and saw my daughter, not in the church service, that was neither here nor there for her, but in the hallway. And these like, little old black grannies would be like, hey, baby, come over here. Let me give you a mint from my purse. And they would hug her and the teenagers would pick her up and play with her hair and be like, oh my gosh, she's so cute. And I just saw her light up. And I was like, you know, we we had been thinking of all these things like we want to put her in therapy or, you know, all this other stuff. I was like, what am I supposed to do? And then I came to the realization, really, she just needed to see some other black folks. And I thought, wow, is it okay to say that? I don't know. You know, it felt like it wasn't okay. And I kept it a secret for a while. I I was like, I feel like I'm not allowed to say that. It's not politically correct. And as I started seeing more and more of her coming alive through that interaction, as we involved her in more things and worked harder to get her in spaces where she wasn't the only one, I finally was like, you know what? People are just going to have to be mad at me. I'm just going to say it. I think that there's value in children having that representation and seeing other people that look like them and rather than feeling like they're always the only ones. So that was kind of my first step was being able to publicly admit that that's what my child needed. Why do you think so many parents find it difficult to talk about culture and race? Like we get so many questions on the podcast about like, how do I broach the subject with my child? Like, it's like, we can't move forward because we're so scared of something. But why is that happening? I see it as being two things. I think number one is that parents are afraid to introduce ideas that they're assuming their children don't have, 
But from my experience, your children do have, they have ideas. They might just not have shared them with you. And the research shows, I mean, consistently, all of the studies that I read show that children notice race as infants and that they start to see differences between people based on their skin color as just toddlers and preschoolers, and that it continues to play out and become even more of a part of their internal narrative as they get older. And so just because they're not saying anything, sometimes they don't have the language for it. At other times, they've already at such a young age gotten the message that it's taboo and we don't talk about those things. So I think one is this incorrect assumption that by bringing up these ideas, you'll be placing them or planting them in your children rather than thinking of, I'm just going to discuss with them the thoughts that they're already having. And I think the second thing is that we're afraid to talk about things that we haven't fully thought through. So as adults, we kind of are tiptoeing around without really diving into these topics. And so it feels scary because kids ask questions, right? They're not going to just let you talk to them. They're going to ask questions. And we're like, well, I don't have the answer to the question. So I think it's best if I try to get away without discussing it for as long as possible. When you started to have these conversations, what did you notice worked well? Like, what was your posture? What was your tone when you started to, you know, just confront these really big ideas about race and culture with your family? I feel like a relaxed casualness. And it was very forced because I wasn't relaxed and it didn't feel casual to me. These were radical conversations. I had never had them with anyone, let alone a child. But I forced myself to have a physical posture of casualness and just kind of, hey, we talk about these things like we might talk about the little birdies uh, you know, that we are feeding outside. It's just an everyday part of life. So I think that was part of it. And then the idea that this idea of kind of radical honesty. And I think people are fearful of that and they immediately say, but they're little. And well, I don't tell all that I know, but everything I do tell is true. And that's kind of how I approach those conversations. You talk a lot about how home is where kids learn values and learn how they'll operate in the world. Would you recommend looking kind of inward first before you kind of engage in this? And then do you have tips on how we can do that? Well, definitely. I think we have to explore, you know, our own identities. You know, who do you think you are? These are questions I had to struggle with because when I had this little black girl looking at me and telling me she hated her curly hair and I was chemically straightening my hair at that time. So, ooh, what does that mean for me? How do I feel about my hair while I'm telling her, oh, you were made that way, be proud. And she looked at me and she said, why don't you wear your hair the way you were made? That really hurt. And and <laughs> I mean, I was like, wow, only your kid could say that, right? It was a good question though. And I had to sit and think, what's the answer to that question? How do I feel about who I am and where I come from? And how do I see myself in this world? And I think that before we can really start to help our children develop these strong identities, and in the book I talk about the thought that identity is something that has to be claimed. You can't put it upon another person, but parents are charged with helping their children to form theirs. And I thought, well, how can I help her feel great about who she is? Because the truth of the matter is I think I'm struggling to accept who I am. Um, so I think the first thought of looking inward, our children are watching us. And I went to this seminar 
once and the woman's daughter said that my mother always said, do as I say, not as I do. And the mom said, but at some point I realized that it's really monkey see, monkey do. And I think that that's what I consider when I think of what I want my children to feel about themselves and other people. How do I feel about myself and what do I feel about other people? Because whatever that is, our children will get those thoughts. It will seep through to them no matter how we try. They're the most intimate people in our lives. This has me thinking about something Jamila said during our Thanksgiving episode, which I've mentioned a couple times, this notion of we were talking about having like a conversation about the real history of thanksgiving rather than the whitewashed one and she said this thing that like even if you don't think your kids you know have the historical context or will understand the nuance of having these really difficult conversations it's important just to have them um, you know messy messy and all so i'm just wondering you know how does kind of messiness play a role in these conversations yeah i guess it's just a another endorsement of of that advice from jamila like we're not ready but that doesn't matter to have these conversations. Yeah, I think like who's ready to talk about that? You know what I mean? I and I think that that's not something that we should leave to chance because their ideas are forming. Their ideas about themselves and about other people. And it's either you're going to jump in on that formation and help with it or you're going to take a sideline and let it happen on its own. And so when I thought about it in that way, it's it kind of felt like it is time to put my big girl panties on. I'm, I'm their parent and that's my job. So I think that the conversations are messy. I mean, my kids have said some wild things in these conversations. Like, I mean, things that if people heard my, you know, they'd question whether to ever listen to anything I said again, you know, if my, you know, and I think though, I encourage it where if you can't say it to your mom and dad, I mean, where can you ever process anything then? And so I'm like, go ahead, bring it. There's nothing you can't say to me. Now, there are places and times for those conversations. And, you know, in the book, I talk about giving your kids permission to wait. And so we have what are called car conversations. And so if we're in the middle of Target and for the very first time you saw somebody who looks different than anyone you've ever seen in some way, or you saw a family that you never imagined could be a family or whatever it may be, I see your eyeballs, they got big, and I look over and give them that little knowing look, and that is, it's a car question. You can ask me, but we're going to talk about it when we get in the car, because I never want my children's curiosity to override everyone's right to feel safe and to not feel gawked at or, you know, to feel like they're a zoo, someone in the middle of the zoo, just because of my child's ignorance. I welcome those messy conversations. Sometimes they get ugly. Sometimes they're funny. But I need my kids to be able to say something inappropriate, lots of inappropriate things to me so that I can understand where they're getting their information from and help them to process the truth. You're a big proponent of books as mirrors and books as windows. For those who don't know kind of about books as mirrors and books as windows, can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important? Sure. So the idea of literary mirrors and windows, mirrors are books where a child can see themselves, their families, or their communities reflected back to them in some aspect. Most often, we think of it in terms of culture and ethnicity, and and there's a reason for that, because there's such a shortage of books for children of color where they are seeing themselves and their families positively represented. But it could be some other aspect of your child's personhood. Um, I have a huge following of mothers with children who have different abilities and special needs and disabilities. And the reason people are like, why are they following you? And I'm like, because 
their mama heart, here's my mama heart. And they feel connected to me because they understand what it's like to have a child who feels like they don't belong. So that's the idea of the books as mirrors. And by seeing themselves reflected in the story, not only do they see that connection and it helps them develop a connection to reading and books and literacy and all of that, but more importantly, it helps them to see that they're valued, that their stories are valued, that people like them. Someone thought enough of people like them to write about them. Um, and then books as, as windows, it's the idea that you're looking through a window when you're reading this book into the world of another person and or another group of people. And you get to see their conversations and how they live and learn things about them that you may not otherwise find. And if a window is a really, really good one, it becomes a sliding glass door and your child actually feels like they can walk through and be a part of that world. Those are the most powerful ones. And so when I started thinking of books in this way, it really helped to direct my own bookshelves in my, for my family. And I thought, that's it. This kind of came, this epiphany, this idea came to me or the research I started doing. One day when I asked my daughter, she made a comment, I'll spare you the whole details, but she made a comment about white people being much smarter than black people in, in some ways. And I asked her why she said that, what made her say that, because that was heartbreaking. And she said, because you said we only we, that we study important people in school and we only study white people. And I had to sit with that for a while. We were in the car when she said it. I turned on the music, you know, and, and I had tears streaming down because she was right. And I said, well, this has got to radically change starting on Monday. And so this idea of her needing these mirrors and it, it kind of blew up from there. Um, so that's the idea behind it. And the thing that I like most is not a separate set of books, you know, like black kids need these books and Asian kids need these books or white kids need these books. All the books are the same. It's just your child's perspective as to whether they're going to see that great book as a mirror or a window. So I love that we have this idea of the shared, colorful library that all of our children should experience. I found like sort of all the tips and these kind of ideas that you provide in the book are very like tangible and doable and in whatever time or space you have. I don't want anyone to walk away thinking like, well, this is a book for homeschool. Like it is not. It is a book for anybody who is trying to figure out how to navigate this time as a family, learning about other cultures and learning about, like you said, yourself. I just am so blown away. It's like, I think you posted something like sort of people are looking for a, a textbook. <laughs> and I, You know, like we're kind of looking for a miracle. And this is not that but it is definitely a way to change the way you are thinking about how to approach this as a family. What do you wish more people actively did or understood? Oh, I wish that people understood that the do nothing strategy is a losing one. So we all have a responsibility to live hospitably. And even if you're feeling like things are going oh well, you know, okay for you or going well, I would like to see people reframe that. It's not going well for me when I see that it's not going well for my sister or brother. And that's next door, across town, in another state or country or anything. And as long as there are people suffering and there's injustice and people who are not having the opportunities to live the full life that I'm living, then I cannot rest. And I, I really wish that that was something that more people actively felt. Amber, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. Just the last thing, where can people find your book and follow you? Well, you can find it at heritagemom.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook at heritagemomblog. 
And I would just leave you with, you know, I feel like we have much in common and our differences are beautiful and should be celebrated, but our differences don't negate our shared humanity. And um, we can definitely raise our children to be comrades. Okay, it's finally time for some recommendations. Zach, what do you have for us? Spring is here, finally, in Detroit, and that means growing season is upon us, and therefore it is time for me to start making my family's favorite thing, my favorite thing, pesto. So I recommend you making pesto, and just know that it's super simple, and you don't need to have like all the ingredients that it says in the recipe. If you don't have pine nuts, because they're super expensive and resource-intensive, just use like walnuts or pecans. I'm going to use pumpkin seeds today because I don't have any of that. So as long as you just have some kind of like neutral or salty texture in there, add that. If you only have a little basil, you can supplement it with some arugula, some people like parsley. But like the main thing you want is just basil, some kind of nut, some kind of oil. I mean, olive oil is ideal, some garlic and some parm. If you don't have parm, use a different kind of cheese. If you don't have cheese, make it vegan. But just like you know, basil and oil is going to just make it feel and smell like spring in your house. And you're going to realize it's super easy to make your own pasta sauce. Amber, what are you recommending? Well, so I am recommending a really good knife. And that's going to sound really crazy. But we got family knives and we have been going crazy outside. We have been chopping things down, cutting wood, whittling things, building fires, building shelters and getting all into this like wilderness survival. Now we're never in the wilderness, mind you. But if we were to be dropped into the wilderness, we would be prepared. But anyway, I've just found it to be this really cool way for us to connect as a family over something that doesn't have any rules or regulations and a very it has a very small learning curve. Um, so we all got really good high-end knives and we've been outside chopping stuff up and hanging out. What kind of knife? Can you tell us? I just Googled bushcraft knife on Amazon. I don't, I don't remember the brand of it. They came up with these little, they're like four and a half inch blades and they have a, like, they come with a little sheath. So yes, my sons were going crazy, but I'm not going to lie. My daughters are really into it too. Um, and you know, we parents, I have one, my husband has one and we've been taking classes. We like got a wilderness survival class with this like mountain man. It was really like a 10-foot beard. It was all the things, guys. Um, And so that's what we're into this season. Well, I'm recommending a wonderful read aloud that we just finished called Those Kids from Fawn Creek by Erin and Trotta Kelly. It's sort of a spin on your classic, like, new person in town, but it touches on bullying and empathy. And it is like a very slow burn. Each chapter is written from a different kid in this classroom and kind of the things that go on in in this small town. And we just really loved it as a family. Like sometimes I'm reading read alouds and it's like, all right, let's just get this done. But I loved reading this book. The kids loved it and we had so much good conversation. So if this summer you're thinking maybe you want to try some reading aloud as a family, and I know I've suggested like having reading happy hours and reading tea times and all kinds of fun things, if that's something you want to try and you have kind of older kids, because I think reading with little kids is pretty easy. But as the kids get a little older, finding books that are appropriate for every one and that that also they can all connect to and um those kids from fawn creek was a big hit and i think the five-year-old liked it because the image on the front is (laughs) is colorful and that's enough that was enough to keep him kind of engaged with the story so i really recommend giving that book a try 
All right, that's it for our show. We'll be back in your feeds on Thursday. Subscribe to the show so that you don't miss it. If you rely on the show for parenting advice, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support the show. Members will never hear another ad on any other Slate podcast. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Again, that's slate.com slash mom and dad plus. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Jasmine Ellis. For Amber O'Neill Johnston and Zach Rosen, I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. Thanks for listening.